From OTMP, this is your COVID-19 update. It is Friday, the 23rd of July, 2021. In this month's episode, Dr. David Owens and Professor Ben Cowling discuss the moving threshold of herd immunity and the resulting impact on the COVID public health strategies playing out in different parts of the world. They discuss recent antibody studies which showed 10 times greater response to BioNTech in comparison to Sinovac vaccine. They also discuss the role of booster doses and the challenges of maximizing the population benefit of the vaccines available in the context of vaccine inequity. They both agree that public health discussions are nuanced. They involve a balance of competing choices, often involving a balance of risk. Ultimately, all population health policy is influenced by political decisions. Okay, well, Ben, it's been a while since we caught up. Uh, where are we at in Hong Kong at the moment? I think we're doing well at the moment. We've been down to zero cases for a while now. I think we've had more than 28 days with no local transmission events. There's been those couple of opportunities for the virus to get in at the airport and at a quarantine hotel. Fortunately, it seems like there hasn't been spread into the community. So we're doing okay for zero COVID right now. And I think that's a good place to be at the moment. But in the future, we do need to think about what's the longer term strategy. Are we going to keep on on this path for, for a while? And we talked about this before. What's the long term way out? Uh, what's the pathway out of the pandemic? And of course, you've been busy academically over the last few weeks. You've had a few papers published and, and one of your papers looked at antibody levels, comparing antibody levels in the vaccines in Hong Kong. Could you summarize your findings from that? Yeah, we've been looking in people who received the BioNTech vaccine and the Sinovac vaccine, looking at how the antibody levels compare after the first dose and after the second dose. And we found a very substantial difference in the antibodies. After the second dose of BioNTech, antibodies were 10 times higher than they were in people who, who after the second dose of Sinovac. And so that's a big difference in antibodies, which are our primary defense against infection. Our immune system has other ways of fighting against severe disease if we do get infected. And so both the vaccines seem to be able to protect pretty well against severe disease if you get infected. But this big difference in antibodies is going to be consistent with a big difference in immunity to infection. So people who receive BioNTech would have a much, much lower chance of getting infected than people who receive Sinovac. And this data was one month after vaccination. We haven't gone further yet, but we are still following the people in this study and also in other studies that we're doing to see the longer term pattern in antibodies. We've talked before, haven't we, that there's two reasons for getting vaccinated. There's vaccination to protect the individual. And we know that all of these vaccines are good, as you say, in protecting individuals from, from death and from serious disease. Maybe slight difference in milder disease in, in the way some vaccines protect than others. And the other reason for being vaccinated is for herd immunity to protect those who are unable to be vaccinated or have chosen not to be vaccinated. I've thought for some time that when we look at combinations of vaccine hesitancy, vaccine effectiveness, and now the increased infectivity of the new variants, particularly looking at Delta, do you think it's possible to achieve herd immunity? I think it's going to be tough. Looking at other parts of the world, it seems to be very difficult to get to herd immunity only through vaccinations. I think the Singaporean approach of using BioNTech and Moderna, aiming for a very high vaccine coverage, may have been enough to get them to herd immunity through vaccination against the original virus a year ago. But with the Delta variant, with other potential variants, I'm not sure that Singapore would be able to get to herd immunity just through vaccination. 
And I think for, for Hong Kong, because we're using BioNTech and Sinovac, the level of population immunity is going to be a little bit lower. And for herd immunity, we want a high level of immunity in the population against infection and at least against being able to transmit the virus onwards. So if you can't get infected, you can't spread the infection onwards. If you still were to get infected after vaccination, if you had a lower viral load, if you were less contagious, that might still contribute towards getting to herd immunity. But from what we've seen so far, I think it's unlikely that we can reach herd immunity in Hong Kong only with a high vaccine coverage. Although the higher coverage we can get to, the more people that can be vaccinated, the less the impact of any future epidemic will be in terms of infections and severe infections and deaths. Yeah, I think this concept of herd immunity is is often misunderstood, this idea that it's an absolute all or nothing threshold. Obviously, any amount of vaccination is good, and particularly if we can vaccinate the vulnerable, we know that vaccines are effective in preventing disease. But I think it is important if we're using this concept of 70%, and it's still in the newspaper, some of the government officials still talk about when we hit 70% as if it's a magic number. I think we really need to change the strategy to focus on ensuring we have maximal coverage amongst the vulnerable who are the ones who are really going to die of this disease if and when it does get in. Do you think that seems... Yeah, I think so. And we have to be be careful to distinguish two different things. That The high vaccine coverage is really important. And I think 70% is a good target as long as it includes all the vulnerable groups and, and vaccines are available to everybody to choose if they want to be vaccinated or not. But 70% coverage is not going to be enough for herd immunity. We may well achieve herd immunity in the future. It may be something that we have to have infections on top of vaccination. So 70% plus vaccine coverage, some people also getting infected, some unvaccinated people, some vaccinated people getting infected, adding all together, the immunity level is going to get high enough that it's going to stop COVID from spreading. But herd immunity may also be something that's transient. It may be something that we have for a while. And then the following winter, because of waning in immunity, because of changes in the virus, we haven't got that level of immunity. And so there's going to be more infections or, or we need more vaccinations to get the population immunity back up to a higher level again. It's going to be something that's that's probably a, a concern for, for years. The virus is not going away. We have to find a way to live with it, I think. Which means a, a balance between vaccinations, hopefully highly effective vaccinations in as large a percentage of the population as possible, especially the vulnerable, and probably also accepting that there is going to be some disease within our community as 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 we have with influenza, as we have with other infections. Right. I, I think for now, zero COVID is the best strategy because our vaccine coverage is still not that high. I think 40% of people have had their first dose and most of those will go on to get their second dose. But if COVID was to come in now and start spreading, I think we'd it'd be challenging to get it under control and to get back down to zero. And I think we're not ready to live with the virus yet today. But I think we've got to look ahead and think about when we would be ready to live with the virus. It seems to me that at the moment, we're just waiting until the coast is clear before we might be able to reopen at some point in the future. And I've heard similar discussions about the situation in, in the mainland, that they're not going to open up anytime soon. They're going to wait for a while. And so Hong Kong may be going for a bubble with them. But if we wait until the coast is clear, I think we'll have a problem if the coast is never clear because the virus isn't going away. And the vaccines that we have are already very, very good. The mRNA vaccines are probably the best we could have imagined. And so with the tools available, we can choose whether we're going to stay closed for, for a long time or whether we're going to plan ahead and, and think about how we can live with the virus. And I've seen Singapore debating that exact issue 
of are they going to stay closed, stay in for zero COVID, or are they going to start trying to live with the virus once the vaccine coverage gets to a high enough level that their healthcare system's protected against the potential worst case scenarios that we've seen in other countries. Once you have a high enough vaccine coverage, especially in the vulnerable people, I think there's there's less justification to aim for zero COVID anymore. Yeah, I see almost three different groups if we look regionally and internationally here. There are those countries that have no access or very low access to vaccines, unfortunately. And we see that only 1% of the poorest countries, as the people in the poorest countries in the world have had a single vaccination. And that's, that's, that's just a, a tragedy and a travesty. There are the countries that have had relatively high incidence of disease but have vaccinations so we look at the uk and europe and the us where to different degrees uh, they are now beginning to release and allow the final wave the exit wave as we often refer to it burn through and reach um, herd immunity and then we have the countries that have eliminated the zero covid locations and the challenge that we've discussed of living with zero covid and how do you transition from a situation where you have varying degrees of immunity via vaccination, invariably there will be an exit wave when COVID gets in, as it, as it must at some point. It's a spectrum, but those are the three areas along the spectrum that I would pick out. Would that would that seem reasonable to yeah, you? Yeah, I think that's right. I think so. For now, in Hong Kong, zero COVID is definitely the best strategy, but we will have the virus sooner or later. I think it's be very difficult for us to stop it in Hong Kong, given what's happened elsewhere. In Singapore, you can see. Delta has really been very difficult to deal with. In Australia, outbreaks again and again. Thailand and Vietnam are struggling and they've been doing well for, for the past year. So for, for places in Asia that have been aiming for zero COVID, I think it's been the best strategy in the past year. It still may be the best strategy today, but I don't think it's something that we can sustain forever. We'll have to move over to the other strategies at some point of, of managing the virus and living with the virus. Uh, otherwise, we, we're going to be stuck in our own own little bubble and and the rest of the world are getting on with back to normal. What do you think about the the strategy in the UK? I wrote a newsletter recently and I got a little bit of criticism afterwards if it was my policy. I do happen to think it's probably the right policy, but the exit wave, I guess we could argue that it could have been flattened somewhat by maintaining some degree of restriction for a longer period of time. But essentially, uh, the UK and I suspect Europe and the US and Canada have already made this decision. They're they're going to accept that they've reached some high degree, 60% or more of immunization, and the rest of herd immunity is going to be achieved by a combination of vaccination and infections. And there are some arguments why maybe it makes sense to do that over the summer, where the schools are, are out and we don't have the increased sort of r naught of the winter. What would you think if you were advising the UK government? I think that they're in a pretty difficult situation now. So the coverage is actually reasonably high in the UK. I think they're above 60%, maybe even 70% now with at least one dose. And the vaccination program is almost running out of steam. I, I think people who, who want to get vaccinated have had the chance to get vaccinated. There'll always be people that don't want to get vaccinated or can't be vaccinated. And so whereas the measures in the past year were, were there to buy time until vaccines available, they've achieved that. Time has been bought for vaccines to be developed and now administered. And I don't think there's a justification in terms of keeping the measures in place for another three months or six months so that everybody has a chance to be vaccinated because that time's already passed. Everybody has had their chance in the UK to be vaccinated. And I'd say the same in Hong Kong. We've all had a chance now to sign up and go and get vaccinated if we want to. So we don't need the measures to buy time anymore. And in the UK, 
as I understand it, the assessment has been that with the current level of vaccine uptake, even if they wait a little bit longer when more people do get vaccinated, they will still have an exit wave. That's unavoidable because the level of immunity is not high enough and it couldn't be high enough even with more people getting vaccinated to stop an exit wave, meaning a, a wave of infections that occurs when the social distancing measures are fully relaxed. So there will be a lot of infections in the next month in the UK. I think millions of infections, many, many hospitalizations, tens of thousands, I would guess, and unfortunately, quite possibly quite a number of deaths from COVID. And we could imagine that they could be prevented if the UK was to stay in lockdown for another three months or another six months. But ultimately, that's just kicking the can down the road, because if they open in three months time, not now, they'll still have an exit wave there'll still be a lot of infections and a lot of hospitalizations. And then you have to add in all the costs of staying locked down for those three months. So I can understand the rationale, but I think it's going to be tough in, in about a month's time in the UK when this third wave is expected to peak and there's going to be a lot of people sick with COVID, not only unvaccinated people. So I heard the director of the US CDC say this is a pandemic now of the unvaccinated. And I think that's slightly unfair because what we've seen is actually a lot of the cases are occurring now in vaccinated people as well. And there is still severe disease in a minority of vaccinated people. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot of protection from vaccination, but it's not fair to say that the only people getting infected are the unvaccinated. It's not even fair to say that if everybody was vaccinated, we wouldn't have the virus anymore, because what we've seen is the virus is still able to spread in populations that are highly vaccinated. The reality is, is it's just a nasty virus. We can do something but we can't completely stop it. And so the UK has their reopening and their exit wave. I think the US hasn't had so much media coverage, but it's essentially the same situation in the US. That now in, in some parts of the US, there's going to be a lot of infections in the next month or two and a lot of impact. But when that's over, that really will be the end of the pandemic. I think there may be a small epidemic this winter with the seasonal forces helping the, the virus to spread in the winter when people stay indoors more. But uh, no further major threat of COVID. Um, fingers crossed that there won't be a, a major genetic change in the virus. So we have to go through the whole thing over again. And so it, another thing that the UK have said is they want to get this over with in the, in the summer so that they've got time before the winter when, when other viruses might be circulating and hospitals have other things to deal with. I think it really must be tough uh, for, for policymakers to decide when there's not a single brilliant choice anymore. There's a, a number of different choices, each of which will have consequences. Yeah, these decisions are very nuanced, aren't they? And one of the challenges is to achieve the high enough levels of vaccination to drive that immunity to the herd threshold. You'd have to vaccinate children. And yeah, we've discussed this before. The, the arguments for and against vaccinating children are somewhat balanced. That On the one hand, we could say that this is still a relatively new vaccination. We don't have years and years of safety data on it. And the illness in children is generally mild. And so we're really vaccinating a child, not for their own benefit, but to benefit other people. And, and is that ethical? And the counter to that, of course, is that, yes, it is a mild illness in children, but some children do get very ill. And we do have good evidence of, of safety data in the studies that we do have. So it's a, it's a sort of balanced decision. And I think my read is, I don't think the UK, they're going to come out soon, aren't they? I don't know if you've seen something. I, I, I suspect they're not going to vaccinate children because they just don't have their safety data. So I think the first argument has won, has won out. And I have to say that, was, that would be my personal view. Yeah, I, I think they have said they're not going to administer vaccines to children. They're not going to give BioNTech to 12 to 16 year olds, 12 to 17, maybe, I think. And I, I think it's a shame because in the UK, 
my expectation is that within the next year, if not within the next three months, pretty much everybody in the UK is going to have an opportunity to be infected. They're going to have an exposure to the virus. If they're immune, they won't get it. If they're not immune, they're going to get it. And so for children who haven't had the benefit of vaccination, that means most children in the UK, if they haven't already had an infection and immunity by now, they will have it within the next few months and the next year. And so that means there's a choice right now of would you like children to get immunity through vaccination or through a natural infection? And it's true that we don't have an enormous amount of safety data on, on vaccination children. I heard yesterday there's a handful of reports of myocarditis in children in Hong Kong who'd received the BioNTech jab, and that would be after their first jab. I think after the second jab, we might anticipate more cases being reported, but still a very small number compared to the number of jabs administered. And COVID is generally mild in children, but it's not always mild. There are reports of long COVID in children. There have been reported serious illnesses in children, I think even a handful of deaths in children. So it's really a difficult balancing act. And in, in Hong Kong, where we have a situation that every case is hospitalized, I can imagine that the advantages of vaccinating children so that they can be protected against getting infected and protected against the, the chance of being hospitalized later if COVID spreads in the community. I think actually in Hong Kong, we, we've made the right decision to offer vaccinations to children 12 to 16 years of age, but it is a... It's a balance. It's, and, yeah, you've and got that's, to find a balance. That's the challenge in, yeah. in public health. So for health. younger children, I think that may be where the balance is in the other direction, that for children uh, before puberty, where the immune system seems to be a little bit different, a little bit stronger in fighting off coughs and colds and respiratory infections, that we haven't heard reports of young uh, of long COVID in younger children, really haven't heard reports of severe COVID in very young children. So that may be a group that that may not need to be vaccinated, may not benefit from vaccination in the same way as older children, uh, teenagers. Public health is always a balance, isn't it, Ben? And, and one of the problems is public health is also ultimately always political to some degree. And this clearly confuses and confounds because complex decisions are sort of oversimplified for political reasons, aren't they? I, I guess it is a political situation. And one that I, I know that we do agree on is the travesty of the lack of vaccination in the, the poorest communities and developing countries. And, and really, as with other areas of public health, social inequality is bad for everybody. It, 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 that's a I mean, that is a political statement, but it's actually an evidence-based scientific statement. And from a vaccine perspective, uh, not having vaccinations in the poorest communities means not only that those countries will have overwhelming of health systems and high mortality rates, there's also a, a high global viral load, which increases the risk to everybody because of the development of variants. And another one of the papers that you've written this week, I, I, I was really interested in your idea, which we, with, with a couple of co-authors, uh, maybe you could explain that briefly, the idea of fractionation to challenge uh, vaccine equity. Yeah, that's right. And uh, to explain on what, what you said, in the, the places where there have been really, really really large uncontrolled epidemics in the past year. That's Brazil and South Africa and India. That's the places where variants have come up. Delta variant came out of India when there was an enormous number of infections. And if there'd been more vaccine available earlier, maybe that could have been prevented. Maybe Delta wouldn't have had a chance to emerge. So it's really a priority now to get enough vaccines for the world. And I think the WHO have said that they expect everybody in the world to have a chance to get vaccinated by the end of 2022 which is still a long time away, a long way away. That's another 18 months. So in the meantime, what can we do to speed things up? One, of course, is to produce more vaccines. 
but that could have been done in the past year and hasn't been done. Could have built factories in every country of the world, pumping out whatever vaccines. Some of the vaccines are easier to make than others, and some of them they're fiddly, and you, you need the right kind of know-how and, and equipment and so on. But still, that's investments that could have been made that were not made, as far as I can tell. Another possibility is to make better use of the vaccines that we do have. And so imagine somewhere in Asia that's got limited supply so far, if they can get a shipment of 2 million doses of BioNTech, they could give that to a million people, two doses. So you give the 2 million doses to a million people with the first dose and then their second dose. You can spread out the doses more than 21 days apart. And that's what they've done in the UK to have the first dose first. But ultimately, it's enough for 1 million people. My suggestion, based on on reading of the literature and, and experience with other vaccines, is to consider splitting those doses. So instead of giving a million people two doses, you give two million people half doses. So you give a half dose to two million people, and then you follow up a bit later with another half dose. So instead of having a full dose plus a full dose, you give them a half dose plus a half dose. And I don't think we would call it full doses and half doses. We call it for, for BioNTech right now, there's a 30 microgram dose. And actually, if you look at the literature on the dose finding studies, when they tested their different doses, some participants got more than 30 micrograms of the BioNTech vaccine, and it was too reactogenic, too much fever, too many side effects, and and the participants weren't happy about it. They said they weren't comfortable with the side effects. But then also BioNTech went the other way. They went from 30 microgram. They also gave some people 20 or 10 microgram doses instead, and those worked out fine. Actually, when you look at the antibody responses, the immune responses, they were pretty good. They certainly weren't weak responses, even down to 10 micrograms. So I could imagine using those 2 million doses of BioNTech to say, instead of giving a million people 30 micrograms plus 30 micrograms, give them 15 micrograms and give more people the vaccines that are available, make more use of the available antigen. And I I made a more general point that I think when when vaccines are designed and when the the amount of dose that goes into a vaccine is, is decided, it's often decided based on how can you maximize the immune response while keeping the side effects, the, the fever and whatever, at a tolerable level? But in my opinion, maybe there should be a different way of calculating how much to give people. And that should be based on how many lives can you save with the available supplies. Now, of course, if you have unlimited supplies, then you can give the, the biggest dose that's tolerable. But if you have limited supplies like we do right now for COVID, I think a lot of lives could be saved if vaccines were spread out a little bit more thinly. Now, there is an immediate response that I often hear that says, wouldn't that promote the idea of of variants emerging and so on? And I think people have in mind antibiotics, where if you spread antibiotics thinly, you have this selection pressure on bacteria and you get bacterial resistance emerging and it's a bad idea. That's why we say if you're given a course of antibiotics, you should always take the full course. Don't stop because there's a chance you'll let the bacteria evolve to evade the antibiotic. For viruses, it's different. It's not the same way of working. So actually giving out the the fractionated doses, the fractional doses, probably wouldn't increase the chance of variants emerging. It would generally increase population immunity and generally reduce the chance of variants emerging. So I think it it would be something worth considering, but I'm not sure if it will be something that's taken forward. Well, the CEO of, I think it was the CEO of Pfizer came out recently and, and said that booster doses were going to be necessary with, within a year. And that was closed down quite quickly by the American uh, Health Department, who, who said it wasn't necessary. And I think you know, I, I, a number of public health forums I've been following, the criticism was somewhat withering. It's hard to see that as anything other than a commercial decision mm-hmm. from my perspective. But regardless, that, that 
I think your point about just because it was the way that it was done in the trial doesn't mean it's the only way, does it? And we saw in the UK with AstraZeneca and initially and then later with with, with Pfizer, the, the decision to give the first shots to everybody and then delay the second shots beyond the timing that have been recommended for the trials has generally now been considered to be the right decision, hasn't it? So, you know, do we need boosters? I think I, I see this in almost three different ways, that there'll be boosters necessary possibly in the future like we use traditional boosters like we boost tetanus or hepatitis b and and, and that might be different for different vaccines if if it's for, for biontech it may not be necessary to have a booster for more than a year maybe several years depending on the the uh, the studies as we go forwards it may be that other vaccines will need boosters sooner then we may use boosters i think you alluded to it earlier that we we may develop a you know a biontech version 2, which which specifically covers the Delta variant, for example. Um, and that, that would be obviously fantastic if we could do that going forward. And then the third option is we may end up boosting already existing immunity in the way that we, you know, we, we know that if somebody's had COVID, we only give them one vaccine and that's enough. And I, I think it may be that we end up boosting possibly Sinovac with, with with BioNTech or with some other future vaccine to boost population immunity. So I think boosting is something which is going to have to be made on the basis of scientific evidence and will depend upon the circumstances. Would you see a different option no, for boosters? I, I completely agree. I think, so actually I, I have a conflict of interest because I'm planning to do trials of booster doses in Hong Kong uh, with Sinovac and, and BioNTech and looking at the different combinations and how that would improve immunity. But I think it's been a missed opportunity in the past year not to look at mixing vaccines and, and having different strategies because, of course, when the BioNTech vaccine is tested, it's tested by BioNTech and Pfizer and Fosun Pharma. And uh, when the Moderna vaccines trialed, it's, it's done by Moderna. So they didn't look at mixing them together. But there are definite potential advantages. And there's been a very preliminary study published from the UK of putting together the BioNTech and the AstraZeneca of one dose of each which seemed to work particularly well. There was a stronger reaction, but uh, the immune response was very, very good. And so that was in a mixing of the immediate, the first dose and the second dose. But then looking later on, maybe giving a, a boost with a third type of vaccine would, would have an advantage. But I, I do think that for boosters, it's premature to talk about boosters right now, even for people who receive Sinovac in Hong Kong, uh, because we haven't yet done the, the first doses for a lot of people. And when the time comes, if a booster is available for the Delta variant of whatever brand, I would tend to imagine that would be a better booster to offer than a booster of the same vaccine we've already had, like the one we've been receiving in, in the recent months. And so to be very clear, I mean, if a Sinovac Delta was available at the end of this year, then I would recommend people to get that as their booster if they've received Sinovac this year, because that would be the vaccine that could give you a specific protection against the Delta variant, which we know can escape some of the immunity from, from the existing vaccines that are against the original virus. So I think we completely agree about that. Let's leave boosting for the future when we have evidence. And at the moment, let's focus on getting the vaccines to the people who haven't had them, whether that's in Hong Kong or in other parts of the world. Yeah, and I, and I hope that the recent news about the idea that Hong Kong may stay closed for a while because of the, the idea of, of having a, a bubble with the mainland, which, by the way, I think will be a very fragile bubble. I hope this, this idea doesn't put people off the idea of getting vaccinated because we, we may still be closed with zero COVID for, for a while longer. That's our strategy, perhaps, but that doesn't mean we can, we can stay at zero cases and if we look at what's happened recently in other parts of Asia, if Delta gets in, it can spread and it can be very difficult to contain. And I, I think a lot of people will be very glad they got vaccinated 
if that were to happen because they'll be protected. And so while we may aim for zero COVID for the time being, we may still have transmission in the community from time to time. And as we've seen in, in other parts of Asia, once there's transmission in the community, there's people getting infected, some people getting sick, some people getting very sick, and it's difficult to slow down and difficult to stop, especially with this latest Delta variant. Yeah, I think we both also agree on that, that zero COVID is is not a long-term strategy. It's been a very effective elimination. has been shown to be the most effective strategy, both in terms of population well-being, but also in terms of the economy, at least in the first half. But we're only halfway through the process, and and we can't really assess the strategies until until the game's over, metaphorically. Still, it looks like, let's broadly say, the, the, the West is, 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 is opening up, and by winter, it's likely that, that, that herd immunity will be, have been achieved in Europe, in, in the US, in Canada. Um, in the summer of 21, how do you see the future of the next six to 12 months? Let's say in Hong Kong and the rest of the world? I think in Hong Kong, we'll most likely stay with the zero COVID strategy, the zero COVID aim for a while longer because of the potential to have a bubble with the mainland. But if we look back at the past year, the, the second wave and then the third wave and the fourth wave, those waves were progressively larger and more difficult to control. And that was without variants being involved. If the Delta variant comes in, and I think it will come into Hong Kong sooner or later, it's going to be tough to stay on top of it. And I'd be worried that the fifth wave will be the largest so far. And that may encourage a lot, a lot of people who haven't yet been vaccinated to go and get vaccinated. And I wonder whether that would also lead to a reassessment of, of what we're going to do in the longer term, because we can't stay on with the zero COVID approach forever. The mainland may well be staying with the zero COVID approach for some time. Uh, I know they'll be concerned about what would happen if the virus did get in and started spreading widely in the mainland, where they've been using mainly inactivated vaccines. Uh, they have the Winter Olympics next uh, next year, which they want to, to go very smoothly. Um, but even next summer, if nothing's changed, then I, I don't think there would be a, a reopening at that point. Maybe they'll have better vaccines by then or better treatments, but it may well be that the can will be kicked down the road again. And so if Hong Kong is, is going to have a bubble with the mainland, which will be an on and off bubble, a fragile bubble, uh, I, I think I said recently, don't plan any summer holidays next year. But I'm worried about when we will be able to have summer holidays without having to face a quarantine coming back in. And for Hong Kong, that's been Asia's world city for many, many years. It's going to be a problem for us if we remain closed for a prolonged period of time. We've already been closed for a year and... Uh, I really hope that we think about the way out of this pandemic, which is most likely having to learn to live with the virus. Yeah, so we said earlier that public health is ultimately always political. I, I agree that uh, obviously the, the strategy is to try to maintain the entry and, and, the, and, the, and zero COVID with the Hong Kong and the mainland. I suspect China's strategy will be to boost everybody with an mRNA or next generation vaccine once they have a, a good one available. I mean, China has high vaccine uptake, much higher than Hong Kong. And I agree, you know, as Asia's world city, I regularly talk to my patients and many senior business people and, and I'm, I'm already seeing an increasing evidence of an exodus to Singapore. And that that is a real threat because I think Singapore will pursue 
the, the strategy that they've already outlined, which is to live with COVID, get high vaccine operates in the, in the vulnerable. And really, if we want to not lose that competitive advantage, we have to increase vaccination rates. But we especially have to increase vaccination rates in the vulnerable. And I must say, I don't understand the policy at the moment because you know Hong Kong has done so well and is we have no problem in enforcing certain regulations. It, it can't be that difficult to make sure that elderly care homes and prisons and, and high-risk situations are fully vaccinated. And that really, to me, offers us the the only potential alternative of of retaining some degree of competitive advantage with other with other other areas but like you i think the the current strategy appears to be focused exclusively on uh, china that maybe not acknowledging that china might be doing a better job <laughs> but maybe that is a political statement we'll, we'll leave that one for the uh, <laughs> for the next conversation <laughs> okay anyway great to catch up and um We'll, we'll meet up in a while. Thanks. Have a great summer. You too. Bye. Links to the studies discussed in this podcast, in addition to further articles on COVID, are available both in English and Cantonese on our website at www.otmp.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe, and please feel free to comment. Thank you for listening. <laughs>